So, uh, <clears throat> never did I think I'd be researching bacterial cultures in preparation for a sermon. Uh, you know, but God moves in mysterious ways. It's one of my favorite verses that's actually not in the Bible. Um, so, teenagers, friends, please pay attention in biology class, chemistry, yes, because you never know when it's going to come up again, all right? So, bacterial cultures. Now, I wish I had a Petri dish or something, you know, to show you, but that'd probably cause some sort of outbreak, so didn't do that. Key to a bacterial culture are conditions. The conditions in which you grow bacterial cells are vital. Now, conditions can be the medium of the culture. It could be a liquid or a solid medium. Uh, now, I've actually got some real scientists here, so uh, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but conditions are key. The presence of oxygen or the lack thereof, the temperature, the humidity, the presence of nutrients, at least the right nutrients for the bacteria you're trying to grow, keeping it clean from contamination, stuff like that. The bacteria will only flourish and grow if those conditions are precise, if they're correct. So culture in this case, bacterial culture, has to do with crafting conditions that are ideal for growth, for multiplication, for flourishing of life, okay? Now this word culture can refer to other things, not just bacteria, not just cultured foods, fermented foods, but there's a word, uh, agriculture, culturing the soil, culturing the agar, the land. This word culture comes from the Latin root colera, which means to till or tend or cultivate, which includes the word in the definition. But that makes you think of farming, right? So crafting the conditions of the soil such that life will emerge, plant. Vegetable life, it's key. So to be cultured then in a bacterial sense and kind of in an agricultural sense means to craft conditions that promote life. And we see this even more broadly in questions of human culture, civilization, politics, society. Crafting the conditions of civilization such that life and growth can happen. To be plain, culture has to do with producing conditions in which life can emerge. We'll keep that in mind as we move forward. The text for this morning is not 1 Corinthians 1, but is Acts chapter 18, starting at verse 24, in which we meet this interesting fellow named Apollos, uh, who is featured in 1 Corinthians 1. Now, in this text, I contend that the culture of early Christianity is on full display. The conditions in which the earliest Christians grew and multiplied and flourished, I think, is actually on display in this passage, exemplified in the story of this guy, Apollos, in these five verses. My main point, the main idea of the text, at least my reading of it for you this morning, is that the culture of early Christianity 
was three things. Could be characterized by three aspects. It was inclusive, it was supportive, and it was formative. It included people, it helped them, it supported them, and it developed, formed, and launched them. Those are the three categories that I'm going to get into as we study Acts 18, verse 24 through 28. Now, my purpose, though, is not to just buff up our knowledge of ancient Christianity, but is to get us to maybe learn something that we can apply for today. To learn something about the culture of early Christian ministry so that we can tweak a few things about our culture in this church, the culture of our ministries, crafting conditions that support life, growth, flourishing, things like that. My purpose then is to help you understand what our church culture should be like by studying this ancient and successful culture in Ephesus and Corinth and beyond. But it's not only this, it's not only an intellectual exercise, but I want you to leave this building knowing exactly how you as an individual can contribute to creating and sustaining this culture yourself. Okay? I want us to see what our culture should be like and to have an action plan about what I can do, what you can do to move us in that direction. That's kind of my game plan for the next 60 or 75, no, 25, 30 minutes. <laughs> so let's get up to speed. Last week, uh, I preached last week, so normally I go, you know, one week off, but luckily uh, I can set the context up a little easier. Last week, Paul was in Athens preaching at the famous Areopagus Council. Remember that? But he was on his way to Antioch, his home base in the east. And so he leaves Silas and Timothy, his partners in the ministry, to get a boat to sail to Antioch. But he stops in Athens. So he then moves on from Athens and gets closer to getting that boat. (laughs) And he goes to Corinth, which was on the coast, where he would set sail. Now at Corinth, which is in Greece... Actually, at this time, Corinth was more important than Athens. It was bigger and uh, more of a center for commerce and things like that. At Corinth, he meets this Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who had come from Rome. And they were tent makers like Paul. So he does ministry in Corinth for 18 months, for a year and a half, with Priscilla and Aquila. And then he's like, I got to get back to Antioch. That was my original plan. So he set sail from Corinth with these two people. So picture him getting on a boat from Corinth, heading east all the way to Antioch, but on the way, it's Paul, so he has to make one more stop, right? And he stops in Asia, the capital of the province of Asia, which would be, will become a key city in the book of Acts, and that is Ephesus. Now let me say a few words about Ephesus because it really was uh, an iconic city. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. Um, It actually uh, hosted 200,000 people in the first century. So it was three times the size of Portland, Maine, Ephesus. Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis, which was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was an important place. Their theater, for all you 
artists or theater buffs, their theater could hold 24,000 people. 24,000 people in a theater in the first century. Ephesus was a bustling place. And that's where Paul was with Aquila and Priscilla. But Paul has to get back to Antioch, so he leaves, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to take care of the church he had established in Ephesus. So while Paul is heading back to Antioch and Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus, some guy, Apollos, shows up. And that is where we get our text. So if you haven't already, uh, would you now turn with me, friends, to Acts chapter 18, verse 24. If you are using the Pew Bibles, it can be found on page 927 of the Pew Bible. There you go. Uh, And I will be reading from the ESV uh, in just a moment, but before I do that, let's take a moment to pray for God's blessing on his word. Lord, thank you so much for the chance to explore this exciting yet short passage together. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate this time, that you would give us supernatural focus, patience, awareness of your spirit. Let this not be an intellectual exercise, but a means of getting to know God, becoming more like him, more like you, Lord. Jesus, would you please be present in our midst as we try to create the culture that's on your heart here. Lord, we love you and we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 18, starting at verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So that's it. Five verses. Pretty refreshing after for Samuel and some of these texts and acts that are massive. Five verses, 24 through 28. Now in this short passage, I think we can see a thing or two about the culture of early Christian ministry in the way that Apollos is engaged in this text. So first, just to give you kind of a roadmap, Apollos is included. Just by mention of him and his arrival in verse 24, we see that this different man from a different region is welcomed into the fold. And as we'll proceed in the passage, he's, he's included. He's not pushed away, excluded from the community. One, Apollos is included. Two, in the middle, Apollos is supported. He's helped. He's not rebuked or criticized or 
uh, antagonized. He is, he's supported, he's supplemented, he's brought up to speed by Priscilla and Aquila. Two, Apollos is supported. And three, the last two verses, Apollos is developed, or he's formed, he's launched into ministry, a ministry of his own in Achaia, which really means Corinth. I'll say a few more words about that later on. So he's included, supported, developed. Those will be our headings as we dive into the text in greater detail. So let's just jump right in at verse 24. Remember the context. Paul had left, and he had preached in the synagogue, so there was a a little forming church in Ephesus, and his partners, Priscilla and Aquila, were there to man the fort. And then a certain Jewish man, Apollos, shows up. He was Alexandrian by birth. Okay. So where was the Apostle Paul from? You remember? Tarsus, which is in the region of Cilicia in the east, eastern Turkey in modern parlance, in the east. What about Priscilla and Aquila? Rome. They were Jews from Rome in Italy in the west. Ephesus is in Asia, kind of in the middle of things. Where was Alexandria? Anyone know? Egypt. Egypt. Cilicia. Italy. Ephesus. Egypt, way in the south. This guy was not an ordinary guy, at least in the ministry dealings of Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, even Silas and Timothy and Barnabas, his other co-workers in the faith. He was from Egypt, and not only Egypt, but the city of Alexandria. Like Ephesus, Alexandria was huge in the ancient world. Alexandria produced the foremost literary and philosophical thinkers of what's called Hellenistic Judaism, this period in which the New Testament was written. There's a Jewish scholar, Philo of Alexandria, Athanasius of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria. The list goes on. This was a center of learning. There was a university complex, a university in the first century, a museum, philosophical circles. This was actually the site at which the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek. So the Bible that Paul and the other apostles used and quote from, it was translated in Alexandria. This was a famous place, okay? A place of learning and philosophy and education, and that's where Apollos is from. Now, it becomes clearer as we move on, but despite his differences, his place of origin, and as we'll see, his slightly different Christian story his unconventional path to Jesus, despite those things, he's welcomed. He's included. We have four more verses in the passage which suggests to me that more happened with Apollos. He wasn't just pushed away, and that's that. So Apollos was included. Would you say that our church or our ministries are inclusive? Is our first reaction to someone who's maybe different to include them 
or to push him away, keep him at arm's length? How can we be more inclusive in our ministries? What would this look like? That's point number one. Now, two, starting the second half of verse 24, Apollos is supported. It says that he was an eloquent man. Literally, in the Greek, he was powerful in the Scriptures. <laughs> Makes sense. This was the place where the Scriptures were translated. He knew his Bible. Apollos did. It says this man was instructed. The word is katechimenos, catechized, catechism. He had been indoctrinated. He had been instructed, educated in the way of the Lord. The tense here suggests that that happened in Alexandria. He'd been brought to know Christ in Alexandria. And he was burning with the Spirit, boiling, seething, passionate, enthusiastic, fervent in the Spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Great. No problem, right? Shouldn't be hard to welcome someone like that. But there's one more thing. He knew only the baptism of John. John, the baptizer. John the Baptist in the Gospels. He hadn't received a Christian baptism. Now, we're Baptists here, and we value baptism highly, so we know that this is a big deal. He'd been baptized into repentance and anticipation of the Messiah, into the baptism of John, but he hadn't received a Christian baptism. That's, that's a pretty big deal, especially in light of the ministry of Paul and Peter and others. Now, it says in verse 26 that this man began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they responded. They did something. Now, picture this educated, enthusiastic, boiling with spirit guy from away who had not been baptized, who could potentially uh, generate a large following, and they don't know him quite yet, but could, could lead a faction, could come in and could really be influential. How would you expect leaders in the church to respond to someone like that? Look at the text, verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila, Paul's stand-ins in Ephesus, they heard him, and it says this. They came alongside him. Or they took him aside in private. They welcomed him. It could be translated. They supported him. And they explained to him more accurately the way of God. This word for more accurately is, is a comparative form of the same word used of Apollos. He spoke with accuracy the things concerning Jesus. They're, they're filling in the gaps. They're supplementing his knowledge. They don't publicly rebuke him or shame him or criticize him. They come alongside him. 
take him to, kind of to a private, silent place, and they bring him up to speed. They help him. They support him. They make his teaching more accurate. They have an eye for his future. They help him do ministry better. Apollos, I think, is supported. Now, when met by someone who is different, especially whose Christian story is a bit different than ours, and who is perhaps from away and has had an interesting series of events before getting here, do we react in a supportive way? Or perhaps in a combative or antagonistic way? I'm I'm not throwing stones. These are genuine questions that I think we should be pondering. Do we come alongside like Priscilla and Aquila do? Or do we resist, rebuke, correct? What is our reflex? And how can we make support our initial response as as opposed to the alternative? How can we make that our culture here? Last point, number three. Apollos is developed, he's formed. This is on display quite clearly in the final two verses of this text. In verse 27, apparently he received the criticism, or not criticism, the supplementing of knowledge from Aquila and Priscilla. He received it with humility, it seems. And he wished to cross to Achaia. He wished to go over the Aegean Sea to the west, to Greece, to Achaia. And the brothers at Ephesus... They encouraged him. They didn't say, you know, I don't think you're ready. Stop. Wait a few years. They encouraged him. They urged him on to the task. So much so that they wrote a letter of recommendation. Think of like a college application. They, they wrote a letter of recommendation and sent it to the disciples in Achaia. And we'll learn it was the disciples at Corinth. Huge city in Achaia. How successful was Apollos' ministry? How successful do you think it would be? I guess to get ahead of myself, uh, if somebody like Apollos came here and went through these two steps, do you think... He'd be ready to launch into ministry on his own? Would you feel so sure of that that you'd write a letter of recommendation? It says, when he arrived in Achaia, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Immediate success. And we're talking relational success. Building relationships, connection, encouraging these growing Christians. But lastly, in verse 28, it says, He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. The only time this word is used in the New Testament. As strong as you can get. Complete rout of your enemies, your opposition. Totally defeated them in argument. Showing through the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is exactly the sort of thing that's said of Paul, the Apostle Paul. 
Apollos shows up from Alexandria. He's welcomed, he's supported, he's launched. And then he becomes Paul's successor in Corinth. And we even saw from the reading that some in Corinth were more loyal to Apollos than Paul. That's what a healthy culture can do. (laughs) Can produce someone who's as much of a giant as the Apostle Paul in ministry. Some people think, I don't know if I'm one of these people, that Apollos may have written the letter to the Hebrews. He definitely knew his scriptures that well. (laughs) And he definitely was competent enough in ministry to do so. Even if he didn't, though, it's clear that his ministry at Corinth was successful. So do our ministries, do they generate competent, developed ministers? Do we produce Apollos's? Or do they depend on a few Aquilas and Priscilla's and not produce any more? How can we create a culture of formation and multiplication as opposed to one of mere stasis, survival, maintenance? Now, looking over this passage in closing, I think it's clear that the culture of early Christian ministry was conclusive, supportive, and formative. And I truly believe that all Christian ministry, especially ours, should be those three things. And when I was 12 years old, uh, my parents left the Roman Catholic Church in which I was baptized and started attending a non-denominational church in southern Vermont. Uh, I had bright red hair, afro, uh, reckless, reckless teenager, preteen, Skater, skater punk at that time. Um, And I just resisted church, resisted getting involved. But my mom encouraged me to go to the youth group. Little meeting in the house of the youth pastor. And uh, I I think she had some incentive, so I went. I did, I went. And almost immediately, I was included. I was welcomed. I built relationships with Danielle and others, the youth pastor. Over time, I was encouraged to buy my own Bible, NIV, Life Application Study Bible, little plug. Gobbled it up, read the whole thing, was just so eager. Around that time, I went to a, an event, encouraged by the youth group, and heard the gospel for the first time and came to know Jesus. And I paid attention to the sermons more after that, and There were conferences I was going to, youth pastor encouraged me to, and I was supported. I was helped. Then the church allowed a 16-year-old to preach. Over 200 people at this church. I preached a sermon in which I said that there are only four senses. Seriously, that's the risk that you take by letting a 16-year-old preach. But I was given the opportunity to exercise those gifts. I spoke at conferences, youth conferences. We actually developed a youth ministry in which the youth led the ministry. If we didn't plan it, it wouldn't happen. 
And our youth pastor mentored us. And I, along with Danielle and some others, were the leadership core of that youth ministry of 50-plus youth on a Sunday evening. I was developed. And I knew I had to go into ministry. And the story goes on, and now I'm here before you all today. (laughs) If that culture wasn't healthy, I'm not saying it was perfect, but if it wasn't healthy, (laughs) I wouldn't be here. Danielle wouldn't be here. Our friends in the ministry who are now in full-time ministry wouldn't be there. That was a healthy culture. What's our culture like? Is this a place where people are emptied, exhausted, drained? Or is it a place where people are filled, refreshed, energized? Do people come to this church to to die? Or do they come here to live abundantly? What's the culture of this church? What ought it to be? And what role can you as individuals play in creating such a healthy culture? Now, in closing, uh, I'll return to our Petri dish for a moment. Conditions, as I said, are key in any culture. On what are our conditions based? You know, there are standards among scientists for the cultures, but what are our standards? What do we base our conditions on? I think there's one thing, only one thing. It's not a thing, uh, it's a person. That person is Jesus. Jesus was inclusive. Jesus was supportive. Boy, was Jesus formative, developmental. Today, friends, today, let's become cultured in Christ, in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, you are capable of anything and everything we could possibly think up or imagine. Would you please, Lord, just inflame us with your spirit today? Let us be like Apollos, just boiling over with your spirit, Lord. I pray that we'd be a culture that welcomes the Apollos among us, supports him, launches him out into his own ministry. Would you make us, Lord, into that kind of culture, please, Jesus? Let us steep in you as long as we need to this morning.
culture us in yourself. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to worship you together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.